Thanks for listening to this Table Church Sermon Podcast. We are in a sermon series right now called Signs of the Kingdom, where we're taking a look at the seven miraculous signs that Jesus gave in the book of John. What we're learning is that when Jesus performs a miracle, it's never just a miracle. There's always something deeper for us to learn about who God is and about who we are. After all, that's what signs do. They communicate a message. Our prayer is that this sermon will help you know what God is saying to you today. Feel free to reach out to us by emailing hello at tablechurchdsm.org. Thanks for listening. Now, here's this week's teaching. Good morning, church. Our scripture today is from the book of John, chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Well, good morning, everybody. Once again, I'm so glad you've decided to come to Table Church today. And I just want to reiterate one thing that Moses mentioned, and that's the meal packing event that we've got coming up on March 26th. We'd sure love to have you come. And he mentioned we're looking for 22 people. That's the minimum. We got to get to 22 people. Uh, We could have more than that. And children eight and up are welcome. Ages eight to 13 need to be uh, accompanied by an adult. Um, But we would love to have you there. And then, like he said, we're going to just... Have some lunch afterwards together. Just hang out in the ministry center. Uh, so hope that you can come. It's going to be a good time. And like I, as I like to say, the church that wears a hairnet together stays together. So come put your hairnet on with us and um, it'll be great. I don't know if bald people have to wear them. They still, do we still have to wear them? I don't know. They probably will make me wear one. But uh, even if I didn't have to, I'd just do it out of solidarity with everyone else. There's a Bible scholar named Gary Burge. And he told a true story about a woman who was given a a grim prognosis, the doctor said that she only had about a year to live. This woman and her family had attended church kind of nominally. They, you know, come Christmas and Easter and that kind of thing. That was about it. But when they received this prognosis, they suddenly became very interested in the spiritual life. In fact, the pastor, who was a friend of uh, Gary Burgess, um, he, he said that he had more spiritual conversations with this family than they'd ever had before, which isn't terribly surprising. I mean, Terminal 
you know, illnesses tend to get us thinking about these sorts of things. Uh, but the family decided, we're going to pray harder than we've ever prayed about anything before. And they would say things like, God, if you will heal her, then we will commit our lives fully to you. We will be in church every Sunday. And that kind of thing. And uh, to their amazement, God did heal her. The doctors were shaking their heads. She went home. She walked out of the hospital with a clean bill of health. Next Sunday, sure enough, the whole family was in church. And the Sunday after that, and the Sunday after that. But then on the fourth Sunday, the whole family wasn't there. It was just the woman and her husband. And over the next few weeks, their attendance became spotty. And within a few months, this woman had actually rationalized the whole incident and didn't even know if she believed in God anymore. She eventually walked away from the church. Gary Burge puts it like this. She had experienced the most dramatic sign God could give her, healing, bathed in prayer, and surrounded by the church. But after only two months, its power dimmed to nothing. Now, it might be difficult for you to imagine having like that sort of an incredible, miraculous answer to prayer, and within just a couple months, not even believing that it was real anymore. But believe me, it happens all the time. Now, it even happens in the Bible. The nation of Israel has, is rescued from slavery in Egypt. They have got about a big, as big a miracle as you can imagine. God literally parts the sea. This is only after like the plagues where God like one-ups all the Egyptian gods. And then God descends in a cloud in front of them on Mount Sinai. Moses is up with God on the top of the mountain, but apparently it takes too long. A few weeks into it, they're like, oh, this God, this Moses, they've forgotten about us. We should build an idol and worship that. So that's what they do. It only takes a few weeks before they start to forget the things that God had done before their very eyes. Uh, we're in week two of a series today called Signs of the Kingdom. And we're walking through the seven signs in the book of John that point to the fact that God's kingdom is coming in Jesus Christ. And this week's sign raises an important question. And it's this, what should the role of miracles be in a believer's life? What should the role of miracles be in a believer's life? What, how do we deal with that? Like, should we pray for miracles when they happen? What do we, like, what's that mean? What's our relationship to miracles supposed to look like? How much should we expect miracles to happen? What's the role of miracles in the believer's life? Our passage opens with Jesus returning to Galilee, which is his home region, and John gives us kind of a sense that Jesus didn't really trust his fellow countrymen in that region. It even says in verse 4, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So Jesus is thinking he's probably not going to have much of a welcome here because, like he said, a prophet has no honor in his own country. So we would expect that they're not going to welcome Jesus very warmly. But to our surprise, that's not what happens. Look at verse 45. When Jesus, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Well, that's nice. Maybe Jesus was wrong about these folks. They appear to have welcomed him. Well, there's more going on here that John wants us to see. In that same verse, he goes on to say, They had seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. So these Galileans, these fellow countrymen of Jesus, remember, this is where Jesus is, the area he's from, uh, they welcomed Jesus, but they had seen him before. They had seen him in Jerusalem, and 
It was because of the things Jesus did in Jerusalem that they believed in him, it says, which raises the question, okay, so what did Jesus do in Jerusalem? And hopefully this isn't confusing. We're having to jump around a little bit in the book of John here. At this point, we go back to chapter 2, and it tells us that Jesus performed many signs and wonders one day in Jerusalem. And then John goes on in this particular point in chapter 2, and he gives us a little peek behind the curtain of people's, of people's hearts. It says, now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. I think John wants us to make this connection here that these Galileans who are welcoming Jesus in our passage today are the same people that saw Jesus work signs and wonders in Jerusalem that day, but Jesus didn't quite trust them. It says Jesus did not trust them because he knows what's in their hearts. They're seeing Jesus' miracles. It says they're believing in his name even, but there's still something off about them. And Jesus knew it. He didn't quite trust them because he knew what was in their hearts. It all finally comes to a head in our passage today where Jesus, uh, a Roman official, comes and begs Jesus to heal his dying son. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you'll never believe. It, it seems like these people, they, they had the outward appearance of believing in Jesus, but Jesus knew that in their hearts something else was going on. They only liked Jesus for his miracles, perhaps you could say. They might have believed in him, but they were still missing something. They, they were into the things that Jesus could do for them, not who Jesus was. This means that in their minds, Jesus was there to work for them. He was kind of a court magician or something like that. Like, Jesus, come entertain us. But he's not the Lord of all whom they should bow before. So it raises the question again that I asked earlier. What is the role of miracles in a believer's life. It seems to me that when it comes to miracles, many Christians maybe tend to lean one of two ways. The first way we might lean is what we could call the miracle chaser. The, the miracle chaser. The, these are Christians that expect miracles to occur. For a miracle chaser, the normal Christian life will necessarily be one that is walking in the power of God, visited by regular signs and wonders. By the way, this is where I want to be. Okay, this is where I hope I'm at. These Christians see what was happening in the Bible and they say, well, why not now? God is a good father who wants to give good gifts to his children. Why not now? The Bible is overflowing with examples of God moving in people's lives. It's also overflowing with, overflowing with commands telling us to ask God to do these things. So why not now? This is the miracle chaser. They remind us that God is to not only be known in our heads, but experienced in our lives. There can be a danger, though, here. This can get distorted. Sometimes, you see, the expectation of a miracle is subtly transformed into a requirement. This happens when the measure of your faith has to do with the signs and wonders that you're seeing in your life. Okay? So, uh, you know, do you see God move in your life? Are you seeing answers to prayer? If not, then maybe there's something wrong with you. This view also risks falling into kind of a prosperity gospel where, hey, if I ask God for anything, then he's going to answer. Health and wealth, all these things. God wants to give those good gifts to me. 
many people see kind of these excesses of the miracle chasers and that can drive them to the other end of the spectrum, which I'm going to call the miracle suppressor. In its strongest form, this view teaches that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit actually stopped being given at the end of the New Testament. There's a whole field of theology that believes this, but you know, I don't see anything in the Bible that would lead me to think that was the case. And we actually have truckloads of testimony and evidence and experience that suggests that's certainly not the case. But the miracle suppressor can be a little bit more subtle sometimes as well. The miracle suppressor, it appears when we downplay the parts of Scripture that just don't really fit with our modern understanding of the world. The, the things that maybe seem a little too weird, we just, no, that's, that's not true. It appears when the primary expression of our faith becomes almost exclusively intellectual at the expense of passion and fervor, the temptation toward being a miracle suppressor appears when our prayers become boring and predictable, and when we pray for miracles, it's almost like theater. Like we're just kind of filling a role that we know we're supposed to. Oh, yeah, I'll pray for you. God, would you heal that person? But we don't actually think that anything's going to happen. It's when the miraculous plays the role in our faith that wallpaper plays in our house, just in the background and decorative. Sometimes we become miracle suppressors because we want to show the world that our faith is more sophisticated than they thought. No, you can be a Christian in the 21st century. Sometimes we become miracle suppressors, frankly, because we've been disappointed at previous attempts to ask God to work in our lives. And maybe we see somebody else getting answers to their prayers, but for some reason mine aren't. And pretty soon I just stop even expecting it. Sometimes we become miracle suppressors just because, I don't know, it's just hard to believe in that stuff, let's be honest. Listen, the thing that both of these positions have in common is that their approach to miracles can make it about themselves. Make the miracle about you. The miracle chaser, sometimes the, the distortion here is sometimes that out of a need to know that we are in with God, that we've got this connection to God, that, that we just want to be privileged and, and that we have this knowledge and this insight, it, it can become this sort of spiritual gluttony where you get kind of a hit off of the one time and the next time you need another one and then another one and another one and pretty soon you start to think you're kind of something because God answers your prayers. It's a spiritual gluttony. For the miracle suppressor, sometimes we suppress the miraculous because we're just afraid it won't happen. Sometimes we've been abandoned or neglected by God or we feel that way. And sometimes it's because, you know, we just want to look smart and sophisticated to the world. But look, both of these kinds of people are found in Scripture. And both of them are making the miracles ultimately about themselves. For example, miracle chaser. There's a guy named Simon the Sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. And, uh, you know, he sees what God is doing to the apostles, he's like, whoa, that's amazing. Now, Simon could kind of do his own miracles. He, he was a magician of sorts, um, hence Simon the sorcerer. And he sees, though, the power the apostles are displaying in the name of Jesus, and they're like, oh, that, that, that's somebody that I need to be with. And so he starts to follow Jesus. But when he sees the power of the Holy Spirit upon somebody, he actually tries to pay the apostles to give him that power. Peter rebukes him for it. Because he's after the miracle, not the God of the miracle. He's a miracle chaser. And similarly, when the Holy Spirit falls on the believers in Acts chapter 2, some people in the crowd start making fun of them, start saying they're drunk. These people are speaking all different languages and they're making up any other excuse other than the most obvious one. They're miracle suppressors. 
They're willing to look anywhere else except for the fact that maybe God's doing something and now you've got to deal with that. They're making it about themselves. I believe this passage today, and in fact this whole series is giving us a third way to look at miracles. It's this. A miracle is a sign. Remember, what's a sign do? A sign points us to something beyond itself. It points us to something beyond the miracle. In this case, it shows us that God's kingdom is coming to earth. It shows us what it looks like when God reigns. When we see a miracle as a sign of something greater, our response will not be to treat miracles as commodities that we can collect or something like that, but as a reason to submit to God's authority. Listen, the point of the miracle is not simply our benefit or even our belief. The point is for us to bow. That's ultimately what it must draw us to. Miracles must lead to bowing, not bragging. There are those who believe because of Jesus' miracles, like Simon the sorcerer, but they haven't yet fully bowed their knee to him. So what's up with that? The Bible even says, James writes, right, that even the demons believe. But they haven't bowed their knee to him. It's, about, it's supposed to bring about our surrender to Jesus as Lord and King. And this is what our passage today shows us. You're going to remember now, Jesus is frustrated that you know, they don't ever believe, except for with signs and wonders. This royal official is persistent. Uh, he continues to ask Jesus, beg Jesus to come and heal his son. And so Jesus, in spite of his misgivings about the motivation of all the people watching in the moment, go ahead, goes ahead and does it. He says, go, your son will live. Now, the next sentence in the verse is crucial. Listen, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. There's something very important here. He took Jesus at his word and departed. Did you know that the man actually did not get what he had asked Jesus for? At least not all of it. The man had asked Jesus to come to his house and to heal his son. And you'll notice the man had to walk for over a day to get to where Jesus is. The man now has to walk home for over a day without the person he'd come for. He simply has Jesus' word. And he won't know till he gets home if he just got scammed or not. But what's he do? He takes Jesus at his word. And he departs. By the time he gets home, his son's condition could be worse. He could be dead. Whatever the case, he takes a gamble by traveling all that way to find this Jesus that he'd heard about in hopes of getting him to come to his house, lay hands on his son, and work a miracle. If it were me, I'd be like, no, 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 no. I really just want the, like, the surefire thing. You know, Jesus, I want to be 100% here. Would you just come with me, please? Here's what happened. While he was on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. The key for us in this passage is it's not simply what Jesus did. It's also how the royal official responded. He submitted to Jesus' authority. The story is not simply a sign of Jesus' power over nature. See, this is what I mean by a sign. It's not simply showing us, whoa, Jesus can heal from long distance. That's, that's cool. You know, like that's, that is cool. And that is meaningful and significant. 
but it's not all there is to it. It's pointing us to something more. It's pointing us that not only can Jesus do that, Jesus is the king of the universe. Jesus requires and deserves and compels us to take him at his word and to obey him. You could say the royal official bows. Now, he does, in the Greek, we kind of get a little bit more um, light on this passage. The, the, in the original language, the royal official, when he comes to Jesus, and he doesn't actually ask Jesus, he, he commands Jesus. He uses what's called the imperative mood. He commands Jesus to come. Jesus counters with his own imperative. He commands him to go. He says, go, your son will live. Now, at this point, the royal official, he doesn't try to level up on Jesus. He's like, no, 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 no. I said, Jesus, listen to me, you peasant. You know who you're talking to? That's not what he does. He takes Jesus at his word, and he departs. You could say he bows to him. I'm afraid that so often we see God move and heal or do amazing things in our lives, and we see it as a blessing for ourselves, but not necessarily something that compels us to bow our knee and worship him and surrender our hearts to God. When that happens, when we don't do that, even the most profound miracle will eventually wear off. Listen, your faith cannot run on the fuel of miracles alone. There must be a full surrender to Jesus. I met lots of people who say, yeah, sure, if God did a miracle, I'd believe. And I'm like, I don't think, I don't think that's necessarily true. Look, I've seen miracles before, and I find myself later on like doing the same stuff I used to do before. Jesus even tells us this. He's the rich man and Lazarus. He's talking to the rich man, and Jesus says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Even somebody rising from the dead won't, won't convince them if they don't have a posture, a heart of surrender to God's word. Listen, I've seen this many times in ministry. There was once a man who I had discipled for many years, and he carried with him a burden of a sin that he'd committed decades earlier, 20 years prior. Now, the people in his life had all forgiven him, but he hadn't forgiven himself yet, and so every day he carries this burden with him. One day he's in my office, and I lead him in a time of prayer, and something happened in my office that day. There was a presence in my office that day as we prayed together. This man, he could see Jesus taking his sin away and utterly destroying it. And he opened his eyes afterwards. He looked at me, had tears running down his cheeks, and he said, it's done. It's gone. Jesus has taken it away. He walked out of my office finding freedom for the first time in 20 years. Within less than a year, he and his family had hardly come to church anymore. He stopped responding to my texts and emails. When I finally did get with him over lunch, he said, you know what? I'm just not sure where I'm at with God anymore. I'm not sure if I even believe anymore. Had some issues with the church and stuff. We're not going to come anymore, he said. He had experienced a profound miracle, but the miracle alone was not enough. Why is this? It's because when miracles lead to excitement but not true worship, then our faith will eventually falter. When miracles are commodity to be enjoyed but not a sign pointing to a king to whom we should bow, then we are wide open for the enemy. 
And we'll soon find ourselves depressed or doubting or rationalizing or neglecting prayer, skipping church, whatever the case may be. Avoiding the community. Here's what I want for Table Church. I want us to have the passion of miracle chasers. But I want the the submissive heart of a disciple. I want us to live together expecting God to do something here. Beseeching God to do something in our midst. But I want to be a church that takes Jesus at his word like the royal official did. I want to be a spiritual community that is seeing prayers answered and lives changed so that we would become better worshipers, not spiritually arrogant. Let's chase miracles. Let's do it for the right reasons. Let's do it for the sake of the kingdom and the king. And so for some of us here, that might mean that you have something you've been praying for for a while, something that, quite frankly, it's really God or nothing right now. Are you willing to take Jesus at his word? Are you willing to surrender it to him and to give it to him and say, Jesus, I will obey you even without the confirmation that I want? Because that's exactly what the the royal official does. He takes Jesus at his word. Are you willing to say, Jesus, you are greater than this problem that I have. You are more important to me than anything else. And I will worship you even in this valley. Because I think when we do that, then when the miracle or when the answer does come, when it does finally happen, it will do what it's supposed to do in us, and that is point us to the king. And so, as we close today, I want to just invite you to go to prayer with me. And um, I suspect that some of us have something that they would sure like God to move in. A relationship or an illness, or an issue at work, or something you just can't see the way out of. I don't know what it might be. Something that perhaps has been going on for some time, and as of yet, you haven't received the answer that you wish you had. Um, I want us to pray together on behalf of you, and I want to ask God to do something great in your life, but I also want us to do it from a heart of surrender. A heart that says, first and foremost, you are my king because you're worthy of it. Because the fact, Jesus, you have died and been raised to life and nothing can take that miracle away. The miracle that relativizes all others has already happened. And so would you close your eyes with me? And I want to invite you to just hold out your hands. You can put your palms facing up if you would. Um, In your mind's eye, just take that thing, that request, that burden or that pain or whatever it is that you're holding on to that you need God to do something with. And would you just imagine it being held in your hands before you? You can make it into a word or an image or whatever you need to do. But put it out before you and surrender it to the King. Lord Jesus, we pray now that you would take this burden, that you would take it, Jesus, and you'd help us to see you take it, that we'd be able to see you work in it, that you would do something, God, that only you can do. And that as you do so, Lord, we would know that you are the one, the only one who's worthy of our worship and praise. That it would drive us further to our knees. That as we celebrate your goodness and love, we would also become greater cross bearers, Lord. Let that be true of us. So Jesus, would you work in the lives and the hearts of the people here today? There's somebody here who needs you to work in their heart, in their life, needs a miracle. God, would you do it? 
and let it be a sign compelling us to love you and worship you and follow you and obey you better. We love you. We pray all these things in your name.